Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning and welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday 13th of May 2018 on Mother's Day. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial or you can have a listen from our website www.3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue where you will find a number of previously broadcast episodes that have been uploaded as podcasts. My name is Andrew Christie from Melbourne Polytechnic and Marine Care Point Cook and today's weather, um, 17 degrees and mainly sunny with a bit of intermittent cloud and uh, looks like we're in for a little bit more rain um, this evening. A uh, bit of wind around too, uh, 25 clicks from the north and uh, swinging around to the south later on. Um, interesting uh, sort of weather patterns we're getting at this time of the year. Of course, the thing to be careful of is that if you are thinking about getting in the water in the next little while, uh, you're just going to have to be quite mindful of the uh, of the fact that uh, there's been quite a... With the rain that we've had recently... Uh, it is going to cause uh, quite a bit of uh, stuff to get washed into the water. The water quality, generally speaking, is going to be relatively poor. So if you're thinking about doing uh, scuba or anything in the next little while, probably best to hold off until uh, conditions improve, uh, improve next week. Today I'm joined in the studio by Caroline Esbenshade of Marine Care Point Cook. How are you today, Caroline? doing well thank you that's the way and uh, we've got a bit to get through in the uh, in the show today some very interesting articles hot off the press uh, courtesy of uh, today's Sunday Age newspaper um, touching on some issues that I was going to be discussing anyway and that relates to the uh, exciting news with regards to funding for the Great Barrier Reef a very interesting article on uh, on sharks and uh, we'll talk a little bit about um, some of the uh, some of the things around Mother's Day to give it a bit of a uh, Mother's Day feel to all those, uh, all those mothers out there. Anyway, let's just go to a quick uh, community service announcement and we'll be back after this. It's hip-hop, blues, reggae, jazz, opera, roots, curry or world music you're into. 3CR's music menu is serving it up to you. You're with Music Sans Frontier, music from around Australia and around the world. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Great Voices. You're listening to Hit Sister Hop on 3CR 855 AM. Music matters on 3CR, 12 noon every Friday. Keep these diverse tunes on the air by subscribing to 3CR. Call 94198377. The newspaper shout, a new style is You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. Okay, um, front page news in the Sunday Age today. Uh, very interesting article discussing uh, the, the headline is Forest Clearing Reef Threat. Now, unfortunately, um, or, or fortunately I should say, we've just had this funding announcement of uh, half a billion dollars. So we're talking a cool $500 million from the Turnbull government as a rescue package for the, uh, the natural wonder that is the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, that was announced, but now, uh, there's the, the news uh, today that the federal officials plan to back the clearing of almost 2,000 hectares of pristine Queensland forest in a move that may threaten the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, so the idea there is um, is 
goes along the lines where you get a, a forest uh, on the land, and this is why nowadays people talk about marine spatial planning, um, uh, Dr Hugh Kirkman being a very, very uh, strong proponent of marine spatial planning. But in addition to that, there is the idea of uh, what we call CMAs or catchment management authorities. And the idea with the catchment management authorities is that you, you can't just look at the water in isolation. You've really got to consider the watershed and the surrounding area as well. So when we look at an area like a forest, of course, what you have is a natural, uh, uh, I suppose, structure in place there. And when you get urbanisation and these sort of things encroaching on that a bit, what can happen is that you get uh, some areas of the forest that get cleared. And what used to act as a fantastic botanical filter suddenly starts getting uh, getting eliminated from the picture. I guess um, Melbourne Water seem to have been working very, very hard in the area that I, uh, myself and Caroline, live out at uh, Point Cook. Um, what we have there is a situation where Melbourne Water have been working hard on putting in wetlands into those sorts of areas where the new developments, the new housing estates uh, are going in. Now, barely, uh, rarely, if ever, does a housing estate get con uh, get constructed these days where it doesn't feature a very prominent wetland smack bang in the middle of it. And it's really interesting to see when the dozers get to work, doing all the clearing of the grassland and all that sort of thing. One of the first things they do is dig out this great big man-made wetland and then they populate it. And it's a really nice experience in the spring and summer, heading down there of an evening and you can barely hear yourself think because there's so many frogs in the water and they're sitting there croaking away um, it's a really sort of a magical environment and and it's a really good indicator of uh, of good water quality too because frogs are quite sensitive so what you're saying is you know the way that melbourne water has put in the you know the waterways is a natural filtration device by doing this deforestation they're removing the natural filtration for the ocean in that area so this kind of five million dollars or 500 million whatever it was it's just basically a band-aid on top of what they're about ready to do. Well, it's a it is a five hundred million dollar band-aid. It's a hell of a lot of money, and the uh, one of the agencies, one of the key not-for-profits that's in charge of uh, distributing that money, have uh, have said that they feel a bit like they've uh, they've won the lotto, and they're going to think very carefully about how they go about uh, managing it because they weren't given much of a heads up. So the so the article says um, in terms of uh, the the funding that was announced. So it's it's not that it's I don't think it's so much that it's a band-aid. Uh, the, the the thing is, if you're going to put all the these things in place to try and uh, and stem the bleeding, as as it were. Um, the issue then is, well, you've got to be consistent in your message, and you've got to be consistent with the way you're going about it, with with uh, according to plan. So if you get this great big fat funding announcement in place, and then go and rip out a rainforest or or a forest area, um, then there's going to be a, a situation where you can expect reasonably to get a hell of a lot of urban runoff and industrial uh, uh, effluent, all these sorts of things that can normally would have been intercepted by the forest are suddenly going to gush into the water and what we're talking about there is things like uh, uh, good examples are um, oh well like I was just discussing before when we get runoff invariably it's uh, you know it could be dog fecal matter all that sort of stuff washing in you're going to get fecal coliforms and generally uh, poor water quality siltation um, lots of silt and turbidity increases lots of nutrients too important to remember we're not necessarily talking about methyl mercury and all the really nasty stuff suddenly gushing into the water and affecting the reef uh, what we could be, uh, what we could discover is that it's going to be uh, things like nutrients. We're going to get phosphorus, uh, phosphorus. We're going to get nitrates, uh, superphosphates, and all those sorts of things entering the water. And what that does, some of these things are what you call limiting nutrients. So if we're looking at the um, at the the marine environment, uh, as soon as we start getting some of those nitrates and phosphates running into the water, uh, particularly nitrates in the marine environment, more superphosphates for the uh, for the freshwater environment. Of course, what you can get then is algal blooms, and you get 
all this smothering algae coming in and that makes life hell for the uh, for the coral polyps and all those sorts of things. You get a very, very strong uh, competitive effect there too. Well, and even not just the nutrients, not the chemical level, but the, the physical stuff that get washed out, like all that dirt and everything, doesn't that cause issues with light filtering in through the water? And that's when you get a lot of seagrass die off and that's when you end up losing all of those really healthy ecosystems that support the larger animals that, you know, create that whole healthy life of Co- the ocean correct exactly right so all that siltation all the all the mud and dirt and gunk and stuff getting washed in yeah that causes major problems with light penetration and then uh, again things like coral polyps and whatever zooxanthellae with the the symbiotic relationship they have with the corals in a, in a nutshell that's going to make life uh, very difficult for them um that's mm. absolutely the case so very uh tricky situation uh that's to say nothing of the nasty stuff that can get in uh organophosphate uh in uh, insecticides and pesticides and that sort of thing which can cause uh, some pretty significant uh, mortality levels amongst the uh, amongst the coral uh, Caroline can you tell us a bit about your experiences on the on the barrier reef and what you what you thought of it when you went there being from uh, America originally and then going to see the uh, the Great Barrier Reef well I thought it was fantastic of course um, you know there's been a lot of talk about how there's been coral bleaching going on I, I don't have a hadn't been there previously so I can't you know do a you know judgment based off of you know before and after but I would say that it was really stunning but I think you could see that there was some bleaching going on and you know the way that you can see that is um when you're under the water it is very beautiful and colorful but you can sometimes have to judge you know how much light filtration is coming through will change what spectrum of colors are available depending on how deep you are but if you're seeing the fish and they're in all these wonderful colors but the coral around them is all coming out kind of white, then that does tell you that there is some bleaching going on there. And as beautiful as it was, you know, you could tell that the colors weren't as probably pronounced as they used to be, or, you know, from my flipping through of Jacques Cousteau's coral reef photos back when I was a child. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which is actually something that inspired a painting that I actually have in an art exhibition that will be opening later this month at Brunswick Street Gallery. It's part of the Australasia exhibition. And that exhibition is all looking about how the region of Australia and Australasia, you know, being uh, kind of, you know, us, New Zealand, Polynesia, those areas, like how we artistically how, you know, artistically and socially and politically, we sit globally with what's going on. And to me, the Great Barrier Reef is just such a perfect response to that because it's a natural wonder, not just for our area, but for the entire world. And how we treat it, how we take care of it is a real reflection of kind of like, how can you tell, I don't know, it's hard to judge other people and what they do with their natural wonders if you know, we have one of the best ones in the entire world and we're not being very good custodians of it. So that painting is actually called Bled to Death and it, it does feature coral that's, you know, quote, bleeding and being bleached. So, you know, I've, I've looked at that, but um, I still really enjoyed it and I really hope that we do try and take care of the Great Barrier Reef better because it, it is a beautiful place. And it, it's not just about, you know, it's a wonderful place to go, the tourism it provides, like, you know, that economic support that it comes into Australia, but also, you know, what is living there that we could lose that later on we might need, you know, the cure to cancer could be swimming around there. No doubt, no doubt. There'd be a lot of that sort of stuff. That's a fascinating field when we start looking at all the, all the marine, uh, you know, 
chemicals and those sorts of things that are in existence that could be very, very handy. Uh, I, I have to have another look at it, but there's a number of uh, venoms too that have been utilised for things like, uh, you know, painkillers and all that sort of stuff. We're getting hideous problems in society these days with uh, with regards to things like opiates, um, the addiction uh, of, of, you know, people to opiate, um, you know, painkilling legitimate uh, drugs is, is quite astounding, uh, certainly in the US and definitely now in Australia as well. Um, so nowadays they're looking at things like cone shell venoms um, and some of the cone shells on the Barrier Reef. I mean, the classic example is the geographer cone shell. Uh, the venom is so damn lethal that um, unfortunately it can kill a human in about three or four hours flat. Um, and uh, it needs to be potent because if a snail eats a fish, it's it's got to be able to uh, dart the fish, so to speak, uh, uh, administer the sting. And it's uh, once it's done that, the fish has got to die pretty quickly for the for the snail to get it. Otherwise, it is not it's not going to enjoy its meal. Uh, it's not going to be able to procure that meal. So fast acting venoms. And the thing is that they don't come with any of the um, the addictive hang ups that we get with morphine and a whole bunch of other uh, drugs that are out there. So something that's pretty important to remember. And uh, a, a very, a very much a, a really fascinating, uh, a fascinating field. Anyway, we might uh, Mother's Day being what it is. Uh, mothers are very, very uh, they're, they're divine creatures, aren't they? They're, <laughs> yeah. uh, they're fantastic. So here's uh, here's a little song for the mothers out there. This is Miss Divine by Ice House. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. That was Ice House with Mr Vine uh, just before the break. Okay, um, just a couple of uh, key points that I wanted to chat about with regards to the funding for the Great Barrier Reef. Um, what we're looking at for the clearing of the land that was the front page news today was 1,846 hectares. And the idea is that they're only going to take place on, uh, on flat land to manage the risks of erosion and sedimentation. The stipulation is that clearing should not occur within 100 metres of a watercourse or wetland. Contour banks must be used to manage water flow and erosion should be repaired before each wet season. Now the Great Barrier, Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority um, has said that floods um, that uh, result um, from the clearing is almost guaranteed to cause fine sediment entering Princess Charlotte Bay where the rivers meet the reef. So poor water quality is certainly one of the most pressing problems facing the reef today and it's hoped that they, if they do put some controls in place that they'll work and uh, it's something not only from the point of view of algae growth and coral growth that we were discussing before but it's things like the uh, the venomous crown of thorn sea star um, which is a major they're actually a major cause of uh, cause of coral loss and for whatever reason it's been found that some of this water quality uh, the water quality issues actually benefit their their populations and it's something that we see closer to home with the northern pacific sea star when we get areas that have really relatively poor water quality 
and um, situations where, unfortunately, the environment is quite disturbed, for whatever reason, these sea stars appear to really like it, and they, they, uh, the, the populations of them absolutely explode in those regions. So, uh, interestingly, when, interestingly, we don't see too many of them out at Point Cook and uh, Jawbone Marine Sanctuaries these days. Yeah, uh, is that a sign that we're doing something good? Could well be. Um, the water quality is generally pretty good. I mean, at the moment, of course, the water quality will be pretty poor with all the, uh, the freshwater uh, inputs we've had in the last little while um, but for whatever reason they, they're thick it's absolutely thick with them out at um, out at St Kilda and um, very few of them uh, at Point Cook we've had situations where they've been plague type numbers where we've had very high uh, what you'd call hot spots but then they come and go as they please and at the moment there uh, there's hardly any of them you have to spend quite a, an amount of time in the water before you see one um, so it's a really uh, a, a good sign I guess. Do we see them much outside of the bay? Uh, yeah, you um, not as much, not as much, and and where they got a big, um, where, where they caused major concerns was not long ago at Wilson's Promontory, where mm -hmm. they turned up there and to their credit, Parks Vic and a number of other uh, agencies and volunteers all jumped into the water and started pulling them out and seemed to have got the numbers right down. I think they reared their head again there not long ago at Tidal River and then the, the numbers again um, seem to have been eliminated pretty much. So it's a, it seems to have been a very, very successful uh, removal. So quite, uh, quite interesting stuff. Anyway, we'll move on from the Barrier Reef. I must admit, I can't uh, think of the Great Barrier Reef these days without thinking of that interesting encounter we had with that uh, that big uh, humphead uh, wrasse. Um, do you remember the one that yes. was in? <laughs> Tell yes, us the story that about great. that one. Um, so Andrew and I opted not to scuba dive because um, we were going to be flying really soon afterwards and you know doing the whole scuba thing. It wasn't that deep and... Uh, they were kind of expecting you to stay in the group or whatever. Whereas if you were snorkeling, you had a lot more freedom of movement. And, you know, Andrew and I actually convinced them to let us go without the... Was, the water was warm enough, so we forewent the wetsuit so that we would have less buoyancy so we could get down and duck dive. But um, Andrew is incredibly good at getting very, very deep. And while we were watching all the scuba divers, this giant wrasse was trying to kind of come and say hi to the scuba divers, like really hanging out less than a meter away from their shoulders. And none of the scuba divers noticed. And I mean, this thing was the size of a table. Like it was massive. Um, meanwhile, Andrew was swimming around them and, you know, they're kind of having a scuba divers had a bit of a shock of seeing him like, Who's this guy in his, you know, speedo zipping around? But yeah, <laughs> I did too. Yeah, yeah, poor Rass. Like nobody wanted to play with him. <laughs> He's just sitting there saying, "Look at me." Hey, yeah, hello, hello. <laughs> All of them were totally oblivious. No one looked at him. It was quite uh, quite incredible, and it just goes to show when you when you do pull on a mask, it is one thing that I've said to I've been saying now for years. Your peripheral vision really goes to pot. You you don't have much peripheral vision at all, and it's just uh, you you do have the blinkers on a bit. And it's it's worth noting that yes, yeah, some very large fish can uh, can certainly creep up on you. And uh, that is the exact topic of the article on page twelve of the Sunday Age today, and it's titled "Solving a Shark Mystery." And this one involves a guy by the name of Ian Cairns, who was uh, one of the uh, Australian surfing legend who basically put, uh, put, helped put surfing on the map. And he uh, went to his new adopted um, uh, country in, uh, in the US, went to California's famous Orange County and a spot called Newport Beach. And it goes into a bit of detail, the article, about how there was a lady that was attacked there. Uh, thankfully, it was only, a, a two, only I should say, a 2.8 metre long juvenile great white that uh, wrapped its jaws around 
around her torso, and unfortunately she nearly had one of her triceps uh, torn off. Um, but uh, basically she tells the story that her wetsuit kind of kept her together. She's sort of uh, sounds like she's clearly suffering a bit of anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder, as you could imagine, as a result of an encounter like that. But this guy, Ian Cairns, is very uh, concerned that there might be some more issues um, arising from the, uh, the, the Californian situation. Basically, they've had a lot more sightings of, uh, of great whites in California in the last little while. And they're essentially saying, well, the, the scientists are saying, well, that's because they've been, been enjoying a few decades now of protection and the numbers are going to, uh, to, to continue to increase. Um, Chris uh, Lowe, his name is, director of the Shark Lab at California State. State University in Long Beach uh, says he's not convinced the danger is as high as Cairns suggests. And it might be worth um, worth just noting there that um, Ian Cairns' uh, concerns are mainly arise from the fact that uh, he's seen uh, shark hotspots develop in Australia where we've had the problems around Margaret River region in WA, northern New South Wales where his mum lives. They've had some really, really significant issues. Uh, the really interesting thing though, uh, who's right and wrong in this case? Well, I think it's probably, uh, probably a bit of both. Um, the thing with the Californian attacks, at one point in time there had been something like 158 uh, human shark interactions involving humans and great whites in the state of California. 13 of those, so we're tracking, I think it's somewhere around between 7 and 8%, 13 were fatal. Um, so it's a relatively very, very low uh, mortality rate. And this case here where this lady was bitten, uh, yes, she suffered some pretty serious injuries, but it was a typical Californian attack where the shark grabs the person and basically breaks off the attack and lets go. Yeah, no, I remember us talking about this in the past and you've always described it as like the Californian great white sharks that kind of go in for a nibble and go like, oh, that's not what I thought it was. And then, you know, bugger off. Whereas here it seems like, you know... I'm just going to eat it anyway. This is kind of the mentality of the sharks here in Australia. Yeah, yeah, we're tracking much higher. I think it's about 40% or something, something along those lines. And unfortunately, those areas that I was discussing before, WA and Northern New South Wales have copped some really significant uh, uh, mortality totals. I think 15 in uh, in a relatively short space of time, 15 fatalities in, uh, in WA. Anyway, the article talks about uh, using what they call, uh, I've always liked the way the Americans pronounce what we call boys, uh, smart boys. They, they call it buoy. Um, clever buoy technology to be uh, implemented at Southern Californian beaches. So the idea is there that the, bu the buoys will use sonar transponders to scan the ocean floor, detect shark movement, and then send warnings to lifeguards, which is a uh, really interesting thing because the Californians are basically saying that we're very ecosystem conscious, ecologically conscious, and we will not cull the sharks. So uh, yeah, quite a, an admirable viewpoint there. Oh, I think that's excellent. And I, you know, about the shark sightings and stuff, so you, you do have to keep in mind, like, are these numbers actually more than they used to be? Are they inflated because, you know, we have better technology, better, you know, even our uh, photography has improved so much that, of course, where you could have been like, oh, I think I saw a shark and nobody would have believed you. Now you could have pulled out your iPhone, taken a photo, and it's good enough quality that someone's like, oh, not only is that a shark, but it's a great white, and this is what size it is, and it's female, you know. That's it. It's, it's really interesting times we live in as far as that sort of thing goes. Anyway, we've got to wrap up. We're at the end of Out of the Blue for another week. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Have a great day, all those mothers out there, and um, stay tuned for Out of the Pan with Sally. And come to Trivia Night.
だなとね